Because I listen to in the corner, back by the wood pile, I no longer shoplift or smoke crap. And when I say bad words, they just sound like video games. Like this. Kim Jong-un and his dog. I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Trying to Hurt Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous people and we see what we end up with. And as always, I will reveal the source of the quotes at the end of the podcast. So getting right into it, first quote, maybe those inclined toward the arts are so spiritually retarded to a degree that we must go through the whole process of cathartic expression just to discover how we really feel. I don't think it's spiritually retarded because I think it's <laughs> sad for other people. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's sad for people that aren't inclined towards the arts. Okay, why? What are they missing out on? I think it is. I mean, I, I think you're missing out on the whole point of life if you don't question or analyze or search or make or. So you're not a torture artist. You're not tortured by the having to question everything or having to explore? No. I think it would bother me if I was stopped up <laughs> and couldn't do that. When I was little, there was so much chaos in my family. I mean, there was like yelling and screaming all the time. And I also felt like I didn't have a lot of choices. And so I would go and like make mazes and stuff, like draw mazes and get out. And so for me, it was always just a way to cope and deal. And okay. so, yeah, I mean, but I hate using that word escape, really, like with art, because I really do think it was like figuring out what to do and what to do next and how to do it right. And so for me, it was almost like a recipe, like making a recipe. I mean, I think that like at some point you have to stop because otherwise you'd sit there and think all the time, like, when am I going to die? How am I going to die? Uh -huh. You know, and I think if you're sitting there thinking about that all the time, like, you, how could you do anything? So mm -hmm. I think at some point you have to stop yourself right. from thinking those types of questions because I don't know how you would get anything done. Right. Again, maybe those inclined toward the arts are so spiritually retarded to a degree that we must go through the whole process of cathartic expression just to discover how we really feel. So I think what they're saying is the artistic route leads to self-discovery and growth and that, I don't know, I'm so far away from the artistic realm. Didn't you take an art class, right? There's like a painting right here you did. I, I did. I look at it every time I watch your dog. But I took the art class because they serve wine during the art class. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but I, I would not say that people that are creative are on that route because they're emotionally retarded uh -huh. or socially retarded or whatever. I just, I, first of all, I hate that word retarded. Uh, as an educator, I hate that word. Yeah. So immediately I go, that can't be a true statement because it uses a word that I don't All right. like. But I, I think it seems like he's using it in a more pure sense of slow. I, right, yeah. I think, yeah. Or lacking. Right. Yeah. 
but some of the most creative people I know, and maybe because they've been that way for a while, are some of the most self-aware and intelligent people and very in touch with their emotional self that I know. So, Have you ever known any artists that were like off the rocker? Yes. I, I actually know two. One is an artist as a career. She's pretty crazy. And one of them is just artistically inclined and creative and also crazy. And when you say crazy, like how does it manifest? Well, I don't mean crazy like you need to be institutionalized. Mm -hmm. I just mean kind of out there behaviors that are just a little bit outside the norm. And I think it goes to genius borders on insanity. The most creative people I know have had to deal with matters of depression, possibly even bipolar. It makes me wonder if their most creative moments don't come in the moments when they're manic. Again, maybe those inclined toward the arts are so spiritually retarded to a degree that we must go through the whole process of cathartic expression just to discover how we really feel. An artist made that statement, I'm sure. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> because a person who's not artistic would never say anything like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a creative mind that comes up with that sort of self-critique. And it's probably an honest critique of that person and of like a few other artists that they know. Because I know artists who, who live in that place of like internal discontent. Mm -hmm. And so, or like there's this void. And so because there's this void, they're trying to trying to express it. But then there's other people that just have a, like an overflowing. I think for many people, um, art can be like healing for the people who are in pain. But sometimes the medicine isn't like quite potent, potent enough, you know. Well, let me take another direction. Both me and you are kind of way into theology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And some people are completely content spiritually mm -hmm. not to know much more than they may have gleaned from their parents or from their church. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with us? Nothing. We're just different. Okay. <laughs> we're just, <laughs> How just... come I, I'm always hungry to, to learn more? If you could make all things being the same, you had two siblings, close in age, you know, one has a natural propensity or curiosity. So you're saying it may not necessarily mean that something's wrong with them. They no, just... there's nothing. No, no. I think okay. it's the search for novelty or to pick at a thing brings that question about. But I think in truth, it's just... How we are, you know, in fact, and it attracts other people, you know, and mm -hmm. sometimes we're attracted by some of the like most content people. I have a, had a coworker um, at Belmont who he worked in uh, security before retiring and before that he worked in the maintenance department and he was a very content person, but he was also like dynamic. It wasn't like he didn't have the, the forethought to like think outside of it. But he knew himself very well. He wasn't a depressed guy or anything? He wasn't a depressed uh -huh. guy at all. You know, I say, well, you know, have you thought about applying to be um, a director or, like, you know, next position up? He's like, no, it's like, I don't really want all that responsibility. I like that other people will do that. You know, and, you know I'm not that really good at paperwork. You know, <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I was, but, you know, but he was very, like, cognizant yeah. of where he was and accepted it and embraced it. It wasn't like he was sad about it he mm -hmm. was himself and it's mm -hmm. lovely when you like find those people yeah. so if you are like an insatiable artist and, and you do it in, in such a way then 
then it's marvelous. But I don't think there's anything wrong with this, Tim. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, at least, I don't have any pangs in my like insatiable desire to like learn more or play more or write more. It's um, if it's an insatiable desire, I can liken it to sexuality. You know, like yeah, there's a pain, there's a yearning, there's a desire. You know, there's a there's even like a strain when when you when you can't get there yet. But I don't know that I put that in any sort of negative realm. Again, maybe those inclined toward the arts are so spiritually retarded to a degree that we must go through the whole process of cathartic expression just to discover how we really feel. Sorry, I didn't get past the first the re- part of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually disagree with that. Okay. Yeah. No, I think to make art, you have to be, to make good art. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I think you have to be a little more connected. Um, I love the concept as um, artists being the shaman, because we see things that other people don't see. I was asked by a psychiatrist once during like an evaluation if I saw things that other people didn't see. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to answer him. Like I knew the answer that he wanted. And no, I was not seeing things. Uh-huh. But He meant like hallucinating. Right. Oh, okay. He meant hallucinating. But I do see things that people don't see. Well, of course. That's... And I bring them, you know, to the surface. I, I make pictures of them. I, you know, I used to use art as therapy. You know, the work that I did in college was very disturbing. My, uh, my family would see my pictures and they'd be like, something's terribly wrong with you. And I'd be like, no, I'm getting it out so that I don't carry it around. And I, I use that as a way to process my emotional well-being or my spiritual well-being or whatever it was. Um, I remember I came home one day and I was so pissed off. I was in a romantic entanglement and I was angry and uh, had to get it out and I attacked this canvas and what came out of it was this beautiful peaceful lovely painting but I knew underneath it there was some rage the impetus to get it started it didn't matter what it finished like but the um, the frustration the anger the catharsis all of that was to get the art going Um, that's where the energy came from and then I met this wonderful man well, and thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say it just because I'm here. I met this other wonderful oh, man, okay. and I wasn't angry anymore, and I didn't know how to make work. I didn't know oh, how to make. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know how to make good work. I made a lot of shit because of him, because I was so happy. I needed conflict. I needed anger. I needed passion on that mm-hmm. gut level. Punch your fist into the walls. Did you find yourself like stirring up shit where there was none with him just to get some good I, art? I did, but that was more because that's how I knew how to have a relationship <laughs> and and have a conversation. Yeah. And you'd be like, I'm not going to play your game, so yeah. you're going to have to find a new way to talk. And I did. And eventually I found a new way to make art. More thoughtful. I'm a more thoughtful person because I'm not as. Um, my work, I think, has become tighter and more compact because I'm not furious and all over the place and into, you know, like I still make a mess when I'm making work, but the work itself is a little more balanced. It's a lot prettier. It 
brings joy to people because I have so much joy to share. Yeah, it was a very hard transition Mm -hmm. to go from creating out of frustration and therapy and, and like trying to work through my own demons. And then when I didn't have any, as an artist, we're supposed to be tortured, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be drug addicts and homeless and, you know, miserable wretches. Mm -hmm. I I don't want that. I don't want that. Yeah. Who does? Oh, I used to get so angry watching the movies, Basquiat, and mm. you know all the the biopics of the poor to- tortured souls who had to kill themselves. And I'm like, I don't want that for myself. Again, we're just going on tangents, uh-huh. we're chasing rabbits. But yeah. it's one thing that kind of irritated me how we we tend to. Oh, this is Hollywood, of course, a mm. lot of times. Or, but I think we all give a pass to creative people mm-hmm. that are pretty actually horrible people like we would would not want to be their friend or if we were their friend we would right. suffer terribly right but for some reason we glamorize it and, and we give them a pass whereas maybe someone who's just a normal serial killer mm-hmm. right we don't see the art in that right yeah i mean a lot of art is is in the story if somebody is you know a content housewife who makes beautiful things where's the story in that we have to dig a little deeper mm-hmm. um I could definitely invent if I needed to, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be dishonest either. So I just it's something I think about a lot because I remember reading a book about uh, the history of Saturday Night Live, and like John Belushi, like he was horrible, not a good person to be around. Was very misogynistic, yeah, you know. But he celebrated because he was a, he was a little funny, right. <laughs> you know. Whereas opposed to a guy we know down the street who's misogynistic. Right. And he's not funny, and we could totally just think he's a piece of crap. Right. Yeah. Or somebody lives long enough to where their reputation is ruined. Look at Cosby. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking, five yeah. years ago, you couldn't even imagine scandal. Right. Josh and I were talking about the other day about, um, like, who is above scandal. Like, Tom Hanks. Like, you just can't imagine anything ever happening with him. You hope. You hope. But, you know, we've yeah. seen people who eventually live to a place where somebody's going to accuse them of something. And well, that's true. And that's... Yeah. Um, it's hard to... Yeah, you have to yeah. sift through that, but... So I feel like I got all of my my bad stuff out, mm. and I can still sort of tuck it under the youthful indiscretion of my 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, Which hopefully will make great art, but it'll make a very boring... A teleplay movie. Right. I'll just, it might, you know, the story will be until I was like 35 and met yeah. Hatsi Klaus here yeah. and, and then, like <laughs> then Rainbows and Sunshine yeah. and Unicorn yeah. parts. And... Scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> Next quote When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. It makes you feel bad. I mean, I wish they hadn't said anything, you know. You know what I'm saying? Right. Just, if it's not sincere, just don't say it. But how, I, how does it make you feel when if someone's telling you something you know is not true, I, but they're trying to be nice? I don't know if I partially feel bad for them. Really? Mm-hmm. Because? Because... Surely they can find something nice to say. I've, I've, I've tried to practice that, mm. and you can. If I said to you, I'm so good at cornhole, I'm going to quit my job and become a professional cornhole player, and you knew that I stink at cornhole, 
What, what would you do? I would talk to you a while. <clears throat> Can you think of any other thing that you're better at? And you could probably make some money at. But I say, oh, I'm great at cornhole. That's what I'm going to do. Well, why don't you just do that as a hobby? And But I think I'm really good. Well, do you have anybody else that thinks you're really good? Besides myself? No. Well, there's an answer to it. Oh. <laughs> 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 Again, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. That reminds me of something like somebody talked about. Like, if you have goals going up, I want to make this amount of money, I'm going to be the number one salesman, I'm going to have this big house, and I'm going to have these boats and cars. People get jealous. You don't want to tell people that unless they're your very close friends who will encourage you or your family but you can tell them the goals of stuff going down you know I don't want to I want to lose weight I want to stop swearing I want to stop watching TV you know they'll they'll be good for that the goals that when you want to cut something out really but the goals where you want to uh, increase achieve things that make other people uncomfortable yeah because then you don't fit in their little world anymore why do you think that is I don't know (laughs) I think because people if they know you and they like you the way you are, and they, they want to keep you in that bracket. It also reminds me of the story this British guy was saying. I don't know how true it is, but he was trying to explain the difference between America and England in, in a general attitude kind of way. He, he, he said that in England, if a, two guys are standing on the street and a, a, like a nice car, like a Rolls Royce, goes by, the, the, the guy on the street will say, uh, wanka, you know, you know, I hate him, you know. Mm-hmm. But in America, if a same situation, two guys in the street, a nice car goes goes by, one guy will say, "One day I'm gonna get me one of those." Mm-hmm. It's like different attitudes. I don't know how true that is, but it it is interesting. That I think you could divvy up people in life that way. I don't know. I can't comment too much about Britain outside of uh, the British Invasion music. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much all I know. So you're fond of one of their bands? Yeah, yeah, I do love the Kings, and they are a big social commentary about the tribes of people of London who don't intermingle. Really? Yeah, that's what he said. You know, they're just tribes stuck in their little worlds and they can't get out of them. Again, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. The boss is like, I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. You're like, yeah, boss, that sounds great. Even if you're like, mm, that's a terrible idea. I don't really do that very often. Does your boss, will he ask for the truth and want the truth? Yeah, pretty much all the time. But he, But I know that if I told him the total truth all the time, it would get me in trouble. Because he is pretty strong-willed and wants it his way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, to flip it, do you ever sense when someone's telling you a complete lie and you and you know that it's not true? Um, I... No. I mean, I might think back on it later and be like, ah, that girl, 
wasn't flirting with me. She was just trying to sell a sweater with her brother. He would try to say something encouraging, um, but also say it in a way that's like, you have some things to work out. He would say that? Yeah. Okay. But he was really good at it. He would say, like, that's a good idea. You need to flesh it out a little bit more. He can say it in a way that it doesn't hurt your feelings? Yeah. Yes. Very well. Very constructive criticism type yeah. of person. I feel like constructive criticism is better than just being like, oh, that was amazing. Right. Because you you're not telling amazing. them. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Then we're going to book 100,000 gigs and we're going to tour the world. My boss is over there. I'm going to tell him to suck it. I'm gonna, this is going to be my living. Like, oh, shit. Did I just... That's not what I'm trying... Ugh, right. As a hobby, this is... All right. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's just... I feel it's around. unfair to ask people, because I think it puts them on the spot. Because I figure out, in my opinion, if I do something, and if they think it's good, they'll just tell me, and that's that. I, if I have to fish for it, then... Well, yeah. some people some people enjoy... I've met I'm musicians... Well, yeah, and I've met musicians that, like, I think if I was a musician, but I feel like I would want true criticism. Mm -hmm. But, this is just a little side note, like, being an artist, growing up in art classes and stuff, that's what we had to do all the time. Critique each other? Every single project. Post it up on the wall, and every person go around and say something about each one. And it could be like, I hate this. Wow. Why? Why? Because blah, 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 blah. Or not I hate this, but I mean, once you go into college, it's like pretty blunt. Nobody really cares. They just, it's just Mm -hmm. a criticism. But as an artist, you don't take that personally. You have to take it and twist it and make it better. And that's just the way it is. That's good. I thought it's good, especially in this age where the kids are always being taught that, oh, you're you're a winner. You're the best. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. (laughs) That sounds like the classic sociopathic frame of mind. Uh The the telling anyone what they want to hear. My antenna just go up because they're telling me things and I think, yeah, this is what I want to hear. Wait a minute, this is what I want to hear. Uh, is, Is this the truth or not? And then I start going, okay, what are this person's motivations? Why are they talking to me? Why are they trying to persuade me to do anything? It's a whole salesman thing. And they go, no, no, I'm trying to help you. There's that quandary of, you know, sometimes if you tell the truth to somebody, especially it's like a boss or something like that, there's gonna be huge consequences for you. True. But telling someone what they want to hear is only a temporary solution. Uh, the truth always comes out. Eventually, mm-hmm. the truth always comes out. And then whoever you spoke to where you told them what they wanted to hear is going to feel probably betrayed. And the trust has, is going to be broken. And in the long term, I believe it's just not the right way to, to behave. But some people only think in the short term. I think about... Um... You have a friend who's dating somebody, and you can clearly see that the person they're dating is bad news. <laughs> but what do you do? The, your friend is infatuated with them or you know, thinks they hang the moon. And then later on, when they finally break up, and they're like, man, that, that girl or that guy was terrible. And Why do you guys say something? Well, I, I would say that everyone has to go through growing experiences, or as a friend of mine calls them, RLEs, rich learning experiences. <laughs> 
And we can't go around trying to prevent the pain of everyone around us. It's like trying to prevent the pain of every child around us. If, if an adult is always catching their child and always preventing them from, from falling or burning themselves, that child is not going to learn that you, know, you can't run there or, or you shouldn't touch that. Now, I'm not saying that the adult should go ahead and let the child stick their hand into a toaster. I mean, right. <laughs> but especially with the dating example that you brought, if, if I know, say, a girl and she's dating a guy and that guy's bad news, if she's an adult, she can date who she wants. I, I also know that if even if I go to her and I persuade her to break up with this guy, well, first, she's probably going to resent me because she obviously had feelings for him. And second, if she was attracted to this guy that's bad news, she's probably going to be attracted to another guy who's bad news because mm. the, these patterns mm. happen. And so a better angle would be be a good friend to her and help her understand that there's a pattern. Like, Julie, do you realize your last four boyfriends have all been drunks? Yeah. You know, why do you think that is? <laughs> are, are there any drunks? You know, was, was your dad a drunk? Uh. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. Or maybe just say, okay, why am I friends with these people who are always making bad choices? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and look into my own issues, because that's, that's a common thing. Mm -hmm. When I or anyone is always focused on other people's problems, often that's an indication that they're focused on other people's problems because they don't want to look at their own. And last quote, And like everyone, I shall die of fatal indifference at some moment, unless my being loses all restraint and is displaced by way of love, like a ray of light toward the others. Um, I think the writer is probably referring to denying romantic feelings. You know, I can die of fatal indifference, not putting my heart on the line, mm -hmm. you know, not, not taking that extra step and saying, hey, you, I really really like you let's you know you want to you want to make out yeah <laughs> has, has there ever been a point in your life that you were kind of okay with dying indifferent and did it relate to love or lack of mm. the most indifferent I've ever felt were periods of comfort and stagnation you know you've got a job that you're doing you're paychecks just keep rolling in like clockwork your alarm clock is set for the same time every day mm. you sit in the same traffic jam you just kind of you know you have these patterns phone calls with family members go the same way well yeah okay see you later love you bye those were the times that I felt bored not bored in a moment-to-moment -moment way but bored in a really big way what am I doing what are we all doing <laughs> And it, it does feel kind of fatal, like a, just like a slow poisoning. Like you're kind of slouching towards death or something? Yes. So a good shake-up is in order for that. That's, um... And when you say shake-up, do you mean like a crisis or... or... Yeah! I think we, I think we tend to uh, manufacture our own crises when we get bored. I mean, everybody has somebody that they've known in some capacity or another, that, that person who's always mad about something, whether it was, you know, the, the waiter forgot they didn't want onions or 
their neighbor planted a really ugly tree or somebody named their baby an ugly name just something you know this kind of indignation over everything and that's um those are very minor crises but i think that when people get to the fatal indifference stage they might manufacture large crises what am i going to do i need a total career change Mm -hmm. you know that it's that classic midlife crisis thing you know people leave spouses they move to a different town they come up with you know this this reinvention something you said reminded me of there tends to be a phenomenon let's talk about politics a little bit where people need a crisis and i think if a certain social problem or societal problem is fixed they're out of a job or they're out of an identity right and so the theory is like they'll never quite fix it or they'll put a band-aid on it maybe um, maybe not even uh, realizing what they're doing because they would lose their purpose you know kind of um, go back to what you said with the last quote then I have to work on myself yeah and that so we will do so much to avoid that uh-huh. we will I will snake drains <laughs> rather than than sit and just reflect uh-huh. quietly um, and snaking drains can be reflective true to go back to politics a little bit, I remember getting so excited about um, how many people turned out to vote for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. A totally untapped mm-hmm. demographic mm-hmm. just came out of the woodwork yeah, and surprised everybody. Uh-huh. And that was a response to a crisis. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, and I'm definitely not the first person to ask this question, but I mean, are these people who voted for the first time in Obama's election, now converted to being lifetime voters? Probably not. Yeah. Unless the crisis touches them somehow. Whatever the platform is, whatever the problem is, Mm -hmm. if it's not relatable, we generally don't care. Right. I mean, I'm invested in my own personal neighborhood association. You know, I go to meetings and stuff like that. But if I went to a neighborhood association meeting across town, I I would barely be interested. Sure. That's so, okay, I think. Why should you be interested in another neighborhood, you know? That sounds like a callous thing to say, but uh, some of the folks that scare me the most are the ones who don't live near you and they're trying to supposedly help your neighborhood. Right. <laughs> right. The, the ray of light. I mean, if you want to be the ray of light, then you have to care about every neighborhood, don't you? I mean, if that quote offers us two options, you can either be fatally indifferent or you can be this selfless, mm-hmm. compassionate ray of light mm-hmm. that lives for love and giving. I'm seeing this kind of like altruistic, selfish mm-hmm. dichotomy in this question that's like, are you going to suck or are you going to be a saint? Right. Well, there's that, but there's also how much light do you have? and. Uh, stretching yourself too thin where you end up not being any good for anybody, mm. you know. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's something I used to suffer from. I wanted to do everything, and I ended up, my dad had to kind of take me aside and said, you know, you're, 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 you're half doing a lot, of, a lot of things, and you're not doing anything right all the way, you know. So that's why I was saying maybe shining your light in your neighborhood is probably enough and more quality, maybe. I'm just musing aloud. Yeah, no, I like that. I'd, I'd like to think that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no way that anybody can take care of everything. Right. And also, 
It may be an insult to the other neighborhood. <laughs> you can't do it for ourselves. Over. Yeah, you guys need to revolutionize your trash pickup. Right. We need to have that on a and Can you hang day. up my portrait everywhere, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody fly my flag. Yeah. <laughs> Again. And like everyone, I shall die of fatal indifference at some moment, unless my being loses all restraint and is displaced by way of love, like a ray of light toward the others. I think most people die of fatal indifference unless they live their life to their liking and they've become content. I think my grandfather died content in the ray of love because he, he had been sick for a long time with uh, prostate cancer and Granny had died like five or six years before. So it wasn't necessarily you're saying he was indifferent, he was just content. When he finally gave up the ghost, I think he just, he was content enough and he had felt enough love enough. So him being loved probably was a, a repellent exactly. to indifference. Exactly. Okay. If he had died before my granny died, I think he would have died full of indifference and just not caring about anything because granny, he didn't give a shit about a whole lot until after my granny died. Well, besides my granny. He was in his own world. There were whites and colors and never shall the two meet. And (laughs) even though our family was completely, totally mixed race, I mean, granny was half white. So it was just like, you wound up married to this quarter black, quarter Indian, half white woman. And you have a problem with the races. Was it it Hitler a quarter Jew? Exactly. So so how could you have those issues? But once he... Once Granny died, and he was like, okay, this family, I still need to try to hold together because Granny had done all that before. Granny was really, the whole time I was growing up, I remember my Granny standing in the alley with either the old white man down the street or Mr. House in the alley just drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. That's how I remember my Granny. That's where it's at, man. Exactly. And in a way, I, I was telling my wife recently, we were sitting on the porch, I said, this is it. This is yep. what we work for. Exactly. Uh, Just to be able to relax. Yeah. I mean, that's how I remember my granddaddy. I don't remember him doing really much else. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when I first met you, I think if had you died, you might have died indifferent. But, oh, yeah. But now you've changed. Oh, yeah. I've changed a lot. And I think... Because of love? I think because of love. I really do. Again. And like everyone, I shall die of fatal indifference at some moment, unless my being loses all restraint and is displaced by way of love, like a ray of light toward the others. That reminds me of a line in one of Ben Fold's songs. I think it's called The Ascent of Stan. And Stan, he was a hippie, and now he's a professor. We say that he's become part of the system. He's the same the system that he was fighting or something like mm-hmm. that. And he goes, you used to wonder why your father was so resigned, but you don't wonder anymore. Oh. True. So this, this song is a bit of an opposite. She's kind of starting at the point of being uh, indifferent. Yeah. But love might possibly save her. Yeah. And, and I think, you're saying this guy starts off idealistic and maybe in love with the world or something and becomes indifferent. Maybe he didn't have love, but he had ideals. Mm-hmm. And I don't think ideals are the same thing as having love, you know. You can have, like, the ideals of saying being the young hippie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're going to take the world over. You've been out of your parents' house for seven months to two years. And, mm-hmm. like, you don't have any of the, re- like, responsibilities. Or you hadn't seen, um, like, an ugly injustice come out of your group of friends. Mm-hmm. Where you realize 
you're not looking apart from the system, but you are the system. Right. Like, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Since I've known you, how long have we known each other? Oh, I think over 10 years now. I've never seen you down. I don't yeah. think ever. Yeah. So I can never see you dying of fatal indifference. But has there ever been a time in your life where... My family business is a mortuary. Uh-huh. And so at a very early age, I had a conversation about like people dying. By early, I mean like five, uh-huh. four or five, you know. Where go at some point you will leave the planet. I was raised around death. Um, death is going to come, and it can come at any moment. When the bomb in Hiroshima fell, when when that happened, there was somebody who left their house. They went down the store to like get some noodles or some sake. There were people doing very mundane things, mm-hmm. and they had no idea what was about to happen. And I think that perspective can be actually very healthy. I, I might be moving away from the original thought because I think you're talking about like being in an abysmal spot. That's okay. Let me move it away okay. from even more because you mentioned Ben Fold. You know Grimey's, the record yeah. shop? There was some kind of gig there that night. I can't remember who was playing, but I know a few of the guys that worked there. And so people were leaving and there was this guy like standing right in the middle of the, the exit mm-hmm. for the cars and he was talking to somebody mm-hmm. way off and just stand there kind of oblivious to the cars wanting to get out. And so finally, one of the guys that works at Grimey's hollered, like, tell that Ben Fold-looking, you know, idiot to get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was Ben Fold. (laughs) (laughs) Again, and like everyone, I shall die of fatal indifference at some moment, unless my being loses all restraint and is displaced by way of love, like a ray of light toward the others. When I think of love, I think of love not being for like a single partner. Mm -hmm. Like I think of love for life itself and like the love, like deep love for other relationships or the way you see things. We were talking earlier that maybe like in your teenage years, had you died then, would you have died? with fatal indifference? Probably, yeah. I think that when I decided to be happy, a lot of love came. Like, I feel like that God gave me a gift of love because, like, at night when I go to bed, I think about all the things I love. Like, I love colors and things, and I love, like, the bed I sleep in, and I love, (laughs) you know, like, you know, like, I love my pillow. and And I think about... That, and I don't know if that might be a coping thing. (laughs) I mean, it may be. I think it's what it sounds like. You're just being grateful. Maybe so. And I do think, though, that it's probably a lot um, of a coping thing because it takes the place of me thinking of, you know, negative stuff. Oh, sure. And I do kind of live in a fantasy world. You know, like I... What, you? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely... I say as I look around the room full of... uh, (laughs) <laughs> strange creatures <laughs> on the wall. Yeah. Okay, let's let's go on this point for a minute because okay. when I had the recorder off, you mentioned trying to read Plato's The Cave. Mm-hmm. And one uh, criticism that kind of comes up with that book or Plato's way of thinking is Plato's unhappy because the world of ideas is far more superior to the reality. Mm-hmm. And we have these high ideals of things and the, the images on the caves he talks about. Mm-hmm. Analyze yourself with like all the paintings you have in your wall. I mean, they're pure joy. I love them, obviously. What's going on there? Well, a lot of people think they're sad. Really? Mm-hmm, like their faces. And I like to think of them as they're like 
contemplated. Yeah, I never. It's funny. I never thought they were sad until you just said that. Now I'm looking at their mouths. Um, I guess you could take it that way. Yeah, a lot of people have said, but they're, they're so sad. But they're, they're just so, so colorful, sad. though. So when I was reading Plato's Allegory of the Cave, I actually did an art series on it. And I decided that I would take like a specific period of time. like I think it was seven months or something where I was going to take away um, things that I hid behind. Um, you know, like I stopped drinking. I, you know, I like broke up with the boyfriend that I was hiding behind, mm-hmm. you know, like just, uh, I stripped away things that kept me from paying attention to what mm-hmm. was really going on in life. And I did a series of, um, artwork. I think I do try to create like this beautiful, um, world around mm-hmm. me. But um, it's not from misery, like during the day, is it? Cause you seem pretty happy here. I mean, I definitely try to escape some yuckiness so I do try to create this world of love and acceptance and beauty Mm -hmm. and um, I try to live there and I do live there and the source of the quotes and I'm going to go a little bit out of order when you want to help people you tell them the truth when you want to help yourself you tell them what they want to hear is by Thomas Sowell, who's an economist and political philosopher from Gastonia, North Carolina, with degrees from Harvard, Columbia, and University of Chicago, and is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Next quote, And like everyone, I shall die of fatal indifference at some moment, unless my being loses all restraint and is displaced by way of love, like a ray of light toward the others was written by Juana Rosapita and was one of many poems secretly snuck into the Cuban prison where her childhood friend and fellow poet Angel Quadra was being held. Quadra had been sentenced to 15 years for conducting intellectual activities not approved by Fidel Castro's regime, including writing poems. Eventually, Pita and Quadra's corresponding poems to each other were published outside of Cuba in such collections as The Poet in Socialist Cuba. And the first quote, Maybe those inclined toward the arts are so spiritually retarded to a degree that we must go through the whole process of cathartic expression just to discover how we really feel, was by Mark Hurd, who was a singer-songwriter that initially began recording within the contemporary Christian genre, though ultimately leaving, famously complaining that success could only be attained by, quote, playing stupider. Heard went on to form his own label and released three critically acclaimed albums before his untimely death in 1992, age 40. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, Go to spuncounterguide.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. 